0: It's the 1950s, and California has a problem. Actually, they have three problems. First, there aren't enough laborers willing to work cheap enough to harvest all the tomatoes. Second, the machine they built to harvest the tomatoes crushes them instead. And third, spherical tomatoes, ripe, red, round tomatoes, are a pain in the neck. They roll around on the conveyor belt. They're difficult to slice, to make perfect slices for the fast food nation that was being built. So Jack Hanna at UC Davis got to work. He created VF 145, otherwise known as the square tomato. Not a perfect cube, but a lot more square than a typical tomato. Easy to harvest, easy to slice easy to sort. Who cares that it didn't taste that good? Hey, it's Matt, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Industrialism is sort of a miracle. It's been around longer than any of us have been alive, and it has transformed our world more than anything else in recorded history. The idea is simple. A system, a manufacturing system, can be put to work to make things better, faster, and cheaper. So, Henry Ford said you can have a really good car for $750. Or if you want to, you can buy a handmade car that in many ways isn't as good for $2,000. That Frederick Taylor, the pioneer of scientific management, brought his stopwatch into any factory that would have him. And using the stopwatch, he would record how each laborer did his job. And using the stopwatch, he'd figure out how to help them do the job faster. That the assembly line, in its full glory, cut huge amounts of waste and effort and time out of the creation of everything. Of course, it didn't start with Frederick Taylor or Henry Ford. We have to go back even before that. Josiah Wedgwood figured out how to do it to pottery. Josiah's father was an itinerant potter, like all potters in England at the time, digging up clay in the woods and hand-fashioning it into a pot that was almost good enough. What Josiah did was figure out how to do that at scale, in a factory, without skilled labor. One person doing one job, somebody else doing another job, over and over again. Josiah Wedgwood was so successful at this that when he died, he was one of the richest men in the world. And his heir, his grandson, a guy named Charles Darwin, used the money to finance his journeys around the world. But back to the topic at hand. The topic at hand is the idea that industrialism demands that people fit in because people are part of the system we are part of the system when we work on the line we are part of the system when we work in the bureaucracy and we are part of the system when we are the customer I gotta tell you the airline doesn't really like it that that person that frequent flyer in seat 3B insists on an ovo-lacto vegetarian special meal a special meal one that throws the entire system into chaos. Or, in 1972, that kid who shows up in a McDonald's and asks for his Filet-O-Fish sandwich without cheese on it. Because if you leave the cheese off, you got to start from scratch. It's not part of the system. Or imagine that young woman, the teenager, who goes to buy her prom dress, and the salesperson trying to be helpful, says, oh, I'm sorry, dear, you just don't fit. Not these dresses don't fit you, but you just don't fit. Because the system, the system demands that we fit. Hence, we have the paradox. The paradox of what it means to be special. On one hand, most people who work for an organization who are trying to build something Would really prefer it if everything would fit, if the tomatoes were square, if the customers fit into the right bucket. But at the same time, most of us want to be seen. We want to be understood. We want to be treated with respect and dignity. We don't care about fitting in. We want to be served. We want to be part of something, to be individuals. There's a Zulu word. Saobona. Saobona means, I see you. Not just, I see you standing here in front of me, but I see you, where you came from, who your ancestors were, what you want, what you need, what's troubling you. I see you. Welcome. And that's what many of us crave. It's what we crave as a customer, as an employee, as a family member. To be seen. At the same time, we willingly and willfully insist that the people who we are supposed to be serving or teaching or connecting with get their act together and fit in. In the 1950s, Todd Rose reports the Air Force faced a real challenge. Pilots were dying, planes were crashing. Accidents that should have been preventable continued to happen. Lieutenant Gilbert Daniels, from Harvard, a statistician, was assigned a simple problem. Take a look at the Air Force planes and figure out if something in the plane was contributing to all of these accidents. Well, what Daniels found was that the cockpit, the seat in the cockpit, hadn't been redesigned in 30 years. It was optimized to fit a pilot 30 years ago. But since then, the pilots had gotten bigger and stronger. So Gilbert decided that the solution was to redefine what the average pilot was like. That if you could make a better seat for the average pilot, the system would work better. Well, what he found was that there were 17 key measurements that needed to be made. The distance from a wrist to an elbow, for example that if he could find the average for all 17 of these attributes and design a cockpit that fit the average, he could make the plane much safer and performance go up. Another triumph of industrialism. But here's what he found. He found that once he figured out the average for all 17, essentially no one fit the average. That in fact, It was a jagged circle for all 17. Fewer than 3% of all the pilots in the Air Force would have fit into that seat properly. So he pioneered the idea of an adjustable seat. He pioneered the idea against the wishes of the suppliers, because it was a lot more work for them, that maybe the system wasn't right. And maybe we needed to accommodate the pilot, not have the pilot accommodate the system. Gilbert Daniel's approach then was simple. There's no such thing as average. That when it comes to humans, not tomatoes, not nuts and bolts, but humans, average is an illusion. And as a result, the customization in favor of the skilled pilot has made the entire system perform better. Alas, The memo didn't get to everyone. This idea that you don't fit, that you are getting in the way of the system, pervades almost everything, especially school. School, the home of the number two pencil, the standardized test, the idea of keeping people back and reprocessing them if at the end of the year they don't meet the quality standard. That what we have built on purpose is a system that insists that everyone be average. The author Derek Jensen asks, Why is it, if so many of us love learning, that just about all of us hated school? Well, one way to understand it is to listen to the words of Elwood Cubberly, later Dean of Education at Stanford University. Schools Should be factories in which raw products, children, are to be shaped and formed into finished products, manufactured like nails, and the specifications for manufacturing will come from government and industry. It's all about being part of the system. And why would a teacher, a caring teacher, buy into this? Because it lets us off the hook. Because you're either on the hook or you're off the hook. If you believe, that there are special snowflakes in the world. If you believe that people deserve to be seen, that they have a right to develop into who they seek to be. If you believe that your customers, that your suppliers, that your employees ought to be independent actors, humans, using their own judgment, then you need to be on the hook, on the hook to see them see them for who they are, to hear their voice in their head when you can. But it might be easier to be off the hook, to be able to say, I'm sorry, you just don't fit, that you're not part of the system. Because if someone's in the system, if they're a cog in the system, not your problem anymore. Being seen, of course, brings its own baggage with it. Because if we're not just part of the system, if we're not merely a cog, then we need to own that. We need to level up. We need to bring a different voice, original thought. We need to take ownership. When everyone can write or speak or contribute, it sort of raises the bar for each of us to choose to write or speak or contribute, to raise our hand. Here's the thing. The thing is Humans aren't average, and the system serves almost no one. But we built it for a reason. We built it so we wouldn't have to see you, so we wouldn't have to care about you, so we wouldn't have to make an exception for somebody who makes our life a little more difficult. And this idea that we can systematize and standardize allows us to ignore people ignore the ones who are quote better ignore the ones that don't meet the standard and we need to do it at scale when i was in business school years ago we did an experiment about mcdonald's approach to mass production not sure if it's still true i haven't done it in a long time go to mcdonald's buy a milkshake and a big mac eat half the big mac drink half the milkshake then Put the rest of the Big Mac into the rest of the milkshake. Walk up to the counter and say to the person behind the counter, I can't drink this milkshake. There's a Big Mac in it. And he'll give you your money back. And the reason he'll give you your money back is it's easier for McDonald's to give somebody three bucks than it is to train and trust the person at the cash register to act like a manager, to act like an owner, it's easier to systematize around it. But more often than not, the system isn't in favor of the wise-ass customer or the person who has a special need. The system is in favor of the system. How can we go forward without actually seeing who the other person is? A snarky meme that's been going around for a while is about special snowflakes. Other people's kids who feel entitled. Other people's kids, who need a special diet, or a special place to take a test, or a special accommodation, because the system isn't working for them. And so, with SNARK, we snidely say, oh, you're some sort of special snowflake. The thing is, you are a special snowflake. Everyone is a special snowflake. There is no such thing as average. There is no average person. Now, if your special snowflake status turns into entitlement, if it turns you into someone who's unable to be flexible, then you're just as bad as the system that can't see you. That's not my point. But my point is that Sawabona, this desire to be seen, runs so deep that maybe we can redefine What industrialism is for? Why did we bother making everything cheaper and faster? What's the point of all these systems? Maybe the point is that it gives us a chance to treat different people differently. Maybe, post the assembly line, the idea of mass customization is that we can treat different people differently, that we can learn about them accept them, see them for who they are, leave enough space for them to tell us who they are, for them to be clear about what it is they will need to become the person they seek to become, and then we can offer it to them. Maybe if we can do that, maybe if we can accept that everyone is on a spectrum, a spectrum of height and weight, but also a spectrum of gender and energy and interest, a spectrum of how quick they are to know the answer or how deep they are willing to go. And then when we add these spectrum up, there are not 17 of them, there's 100 of them, 200 of them, and there is no average person. The industrial age, the 100-year run of the triumph of the system, seems to be coming to a close. That mass customization Artificial intelligence, the sharing of information across the internet, the ability to outsource manufacturing and other systems means that you no longer get ahead by making one flavor of ketchup. It means that there are more than 20 kinds of Oreos. It means that Starbucks has more than 80,000 combinations of beverages, that the edge cases, the jagged edges, are now a specialty of more and more organizations. And that effective schools have discovered that the way to be effective is not to treat people as average, but that the way to be effective is to embrace the fact that no one is average. That the competitive advantage today is to become the kind of student or teacher that sees the specialness in every single person that you're able to engage with, to become the kind of boss that works hard to hire someone who doesn't look or act or believe all of the things that everyone else does. It turns out that finding customers who care and who want to be seen is significantly more profitable than insisting that everybody fit in. Normal isn't the point anymore, weird is. The edges, the edges of interest, the edges of caring, the edges of the human who is special, which in fact... Is all of us. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle Gray, and first of all, I love the show, and that completes my question. Hi Seth, this is Paul from Huntington Beach, California. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth. Hey Seth. Hi Seth, and greetings from Lithuania. Hey Seth. Hey, it's Seth, and here are a couple questions about last week's episode. To ask a question about the episode we just finished one more time, visit akimbo.link. Thanks. Um, So my question is regarding the second scenario where you you might deem yourself to be of lower status. Um, So my question is, can you share a practical example of what someone would do in, let's say, a networking event where, um, take myself, for example, I deem myself to be of lower status than someone else, and that's someone else I want to engage with. Um, now, how would I tweak the status in order to make the best of the situation so I can be on a partnership term with this person as opposed to coming from a situation where I feel like I'm responding to them and they're, um, they have the upper hand in negotiation? Thanks for this. It's a great question to cover a lot of ground with. I want to start by identifying a couple things here. First of all, status roles are internal as much as external we tell ourselves a story, a story about which status we, quote, deserve, where we are comfortable. If you see yourself in a given situation as high status, and someone treats you as lower status, you will bristle at that. You will work to undo it. You will be offended. You will push yourself away from someone or confront the issue and try to restore the status you think you deserve, as we saw in The Godfather. The opposite is also true. People who see themselves as low status, if they are put in a situation where they have to adopt a high-status posture, they may sabotage it, they may walk away from it, it may make them uncomfortable. But the other axes that are worth considering is that status is always relative. The high-status operative, the woman who does biz dev at a fancy company, maybe when she gets to her weekly neighborhood soccer game, is seen by the other players and herself as low status, that it depends on where you are. One day you're the governor, the next day they're pulling you over because you're not allowed to go through the secret entrance at the airport. Status will shift depending on who you are with and what setting you are in. So with that said, let's go to the place you described, that hotbed of status roles, the cocktail party, or the networking event. You, the person who shows up seeking help, might see yourself as high status in many situations. You're the founder, the organizer, the person with a project. You're the head of a nonprofit. You're doing worthy work. You have a project. And now you want help. Do you want help from a low status person who sees themselves as low status? Probably not. You're probably at the event, hoping some fancy person will take you under their wing, or invest, or be a philanthropist for you, or show up on the board. How do you approach that person? Well, now you're starting to see the game dynamic at play, because you must get enrollment from that person to go on the journey that you're on. Do they believe that listening to you, helping you, supporting you, will help them maintain their status, increase their status, take their status to where they want it to go. Because they're probably not going to help you because you deserve it. They're probably not going to help you merely because it's important. Maintaining status roles takes precedence over these things, because we all have choices. And we often make those choices based on our perception of the interaction. So let's think about the fancy gala or any of the big-name museums in New York City, to be on the board of one of these museums is extraordinarily expensive. They contribute a huge percentage of the operating expenses of one of the museums. So how do you get fancy rich people to be on the board? It's not like the meetings are really fun. You do it because the board has been positioned from the start as a way to secure and announce your status. It's an honor to be asked. It's a shame. It's something that people avoid to not be asked. People will go out of their way to end up in that circle if that status role is important to them. That's also the seduction to a lot of people of being a mentor. Somebody who is ostensibly of high status comes to you, lowers their status, and says, I need your help. Will you be my coach and mentor, my advisor? Obviously, Only someone with more status than me could possibly take on this role. When that happens, when the student offers to lower status momentarily, the more status the student has in that moment, the happier the status-seeking mentor will be. So this explains a lot of the posturing that goes on in Silicon Valley. With each entrepreneur outdoing the other, pretending that everything is perfect so that they can get powerful people to take them on, thus making it a self-fulfilling prophecy, more likely that it's going to work. But that isn't the only way that it can work. One of the things that happens in environments that shift is that the newcomer, the younger, in quotation marks, person, shows up, they're moving fast, they're moving up. Let's say, you know, there's some big internet star. And then the person from old media the person who's been at this for a while, sees a threat and realizes that by associating herself or himself with this new trajectory, status can be maintained. And so what we end up with is nested boxes within nested boxes. What we end up with is no obvious path, but many, many potential paths. And the purpose of this narrative from the last episode, was to help you see the status roles and to help you understand that people are resilient, but they want to bounce back to the status role they've assigned themselves to. And that it's extremely unlikely that you will get someone to negotiate with you or support you by you playing a high status role and trying to force them into a low status role if they're not used to that. That is a recipe for stalemate, that instead, helping people get to the role that they've always sought, the one where they think they belong, is the easiest way to get them engaged in going on the journey with you. Status roles and shame are really hot topics, in particular if you're raising kids, because at least some of them really crave for a very high status at a young age. And they get quite frustrated when they can't get a high status through their parents. So how can they be consoled, or is this just a case of, you know, one of life's lessons? Thanks for your input. Goodbye. What a great parenting question, and a cultural one as well. So let me chime in a little bit here, because it is true that many high-performing parents and parents who care will push their kids from a young age to seek high status roles. Unfortunately, nursery school and kindergarten are too often a zero-sum game. There's a finite set of blocks. Either I have the blocks or you have the blocks. There's only a few mats for nap time. Either I have the mat or you have the mat. And if we raise our kids to define their success by who they are ahead of, by who they are beating, by what scarce resource they possess, what we're going to end up with is an unhappy bully because there isn't enough to go around. There never is. But the answer is not to find a way to give our kids solace and to soothe them when they don't win. No, I would like to argue that the answer, that the enlightened parent figures out, that what we can do is teach our kids that there are other forms of status. There is the status of being comfortable enough in your own skin, and confident enough to help someone who doesn't have enough. The idea that opening doors for others, even from the age of three or four, is something to be applauded. That this generous act is the act of a high-status individual. When we can lay down those tracks, when we can establish for our kids that the best way to be seen as the person who should eat lunch first is to never be the person who insists on eating lunch first. That what we get to do is raise kids who see the kid on the playground who's being bullied and stand up for them, because that's a high-status role. That it takes an enormous amount of emotional labor and a certain amount of maturity to be indirect about the way We expose our status when we're a really little kid. But deliberate and persistent parenting can support that way of looking at the world. That's one reason why competitive sports in school make so little sense. Because the easy thing to measure is who won. The easy thing to measure is who's on the first string. And we tell ourselves we do that because we're training our kids to go into a world that works that way. Except the world doesn't actually work that way. The world doesn't do a forced ranking of everyone all the time. That, in fact, going forward, what we're seeing more and more is that in a connection economy, the way the world works is that people who are able to weave a community around them, who are able to selflessly lead, who are able to take a longer-term view, are happier, are more resilient, And come out ahead by whatever measure you want to measure ahead, if ahead doesn't include beating everybody else. So, thanks for that. Thanks for your questions. And we'll see you next time. Keep making a ruckus. So, that's another episode of Akimbo. You can find the show notes and the magic button to ask questions at akimbo.link. Go ahead, visit it, click the button, and contribute your question about this episode which I'll answer next time. Thanks for listening. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project, it's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.